You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. I've titled this talk, The End of the Post-War Era. And by post-war, I mean post-World War II. Now, I put a question mark there because, of course, anything like that would be debatable. Um, But there are several reasons uh, why I would say that. One big one, um, which is that there has not until now been a major aggressive war uh, on the European continent. Um, there was the, uh, the debacle that happened in the wake of the, the collapse of uh, Yugoslavia as a single nation. Uh, no one is going to doubt that that was a very serious conflict. Um, but that was within a, a state. This is between two uh, separate sovereign states, one of which denies the sovereignty of the other and has invaded it in a, uh, a tw- we might say, a 20th century fashion, but uh, no longer is it just the 20th century. So I want to pose that and give you some ideas to think about why that might be true on the energy uh, front as well. So um, to go to the next slide, um, uh, yeah, this is a dramatic image. Uh, It is meant to be. Um, The situation uh, boiled down And of course, this uh, deletes or uh, leaves out a great deal, Uh, but it it talks about what I'll I'll be covering um, or touching on in this presentation. Uh, I mentioned that this is the first major war in Europe uh, since 1945. Uh, So the post-World War II era, well, that would include Japan, of course, and, and East Asia, most of Asia, in fact. Um, so there's uh, a little bit of a, a bias in that. Um, however, there's no bias in what is considered now to be a fact that it is the worst energy crisis for the European Union in its history. Uh, it's probably a worse crisis, though it has not uh, unfolded entirely, and it is certainly nowhere near an end uh, than what happened in the 1970s. Um, before the union was actually uh, created, uh, but during the uh, the two oil crises that happened during that period, uh, we are in the midst of a new uh, landscape that is being assembled for energy geopolitics. And what is energy geopolitics? You can think of it in terms of the relationships, the energy relationships between different countries, between especially suppliers or exporters and importers. This is shifting uh, in, a, in a very large way, large scale way, and uh, no one quite knows where uh, things will end up. Um, so uh, the first question is, how did all this happen? How did all this come together um, or fly apart, if you will? And uh, I want to 
uh, emphasize that it is not solely due to the Ukraine war. Aspects of this have been in, uh, in development for quite a while. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the early stage of the uh, energy crisis in Europe actually began last summer. Uh, though no, no, no one knew it at the time, though there were some uh, suspicions. By the end of the fall, we did have a very good idea about what was probably going on. Um, but that, in fact, did not include uh, the invasion of uh, Ukraine at the scale that it was done. Now, if you were teaching uh, a class about uh, some of the material that I'm covering, uh, you would start with some of the background facts, and these are important. You can think of this as kind of laying a narrative out where you have a, a stage or a major context, and then you have the big players, the actors, the protagonists, and then you have a plot which has unfolded uh, with, with all kinds of suspense um, and casualties in somewhat of a Shakespearean way, but I don't use those terms to trivialize it. So what is a background fact? Um, I would point to this one as being extremely important and one that has been somewhat forgotten, uh, not least by Europe itself. Uh, fossil fuels are not going away soon. They run the world still. 82% of global energy use is still oil, gas, and coal. This is a very fundamental fact of the current energy situation. It does not say anything about uh, specific about the future, except that the, it, a lot of work remains to be done uh, to reduce the emissions from these fuels and to reduce their, their primacy um, in the world. Um, and I will show you an image in a moment uh, to uh, make that more clear. Uh, now we get to the players or the protagonists. Russia is, one, is the largest exporter of energy in the world. Uh, it remains that even now um, with all the chaos that's been uh, occurring because of its invasion. Uh, but there is no other country that comes close to the breadth of Russia's exports. And I will show you some information on that as, as well. The US, however, is a competitor now to Russia uh, this is as of 2017, and this has a great deal to do uh, with what you have probably heard as the fracking revolution or the shale revolution, which has turned uh, the U.S. completely upside down from being uh, the world's largest importer to the world's largest producer of oil and gas and, uh, and a growing exporter which also places the U.S. in competition with OPEC. They are always a player when you are talking about oil and gas. So what is OPEC's role? So these are the three suppliers that I'll be talking about um, today. What about the other side? Well, the EU is a very large, as an entity, very large uh, importer, um, not quite as large as China and India put together. China is the largest oil and gas importer uh, in the world today, uh, having taken the U.S. Uh, place um, fairly rapidly after the U.S. Uh, um, became more of an exporter. And then India is next. Um, India is in an earlier stage of development. 
than China is, but its population will probably exceed that of China uh, this decade, maybe even within the next several years. Um, so you have three major uh, exporters and you have three large importers here. Uh, the largest exporter and the largest importer uh, share a very long border and a very long and somewhat star-crossed history uh, together. Um, but they both share uh, their uh, role, very large-scale role in, uh, in a new era of autocracy. And that's a political position, which has obviously put them at odds with, uh, um, with most of the advanced countries, uh, which are democracies, uh, many of them liberal democracies and others somewhat in between. So these are the major protagonists. So here are some of the, the, the facts of the, uh, of the plot that is unfolded. In the summer of 2021, um, for no apparent reason, uh, Russia began to reduce its gas flow to the EU. The EU is Russia's largest client, largest um, customer um, by far, uh, but it began to reduce the gas flow. And this was during a period when demand was rising for oil and for gas since uh, it was towards the end of the lockdown period uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, this uh, reduction in gas flow continued into the fall and got worse. Uh, and then in early 2022, uh, when uh, winter came on, it got even worse, um, very serious uh, for Europe. And prices uh, went very high. Um, this was the beginning of the crisis for Europe in a serious way. Um, so uh, this began uh, without a clear reason. By the end of 2021 and early 2022, when Russia had uh, placed a lot of troops around Ukraine, then uh, it became fairly clear that uh, what they were trying to do was uh, throw Europe off basis, uh, put them in a crisis so they would not be a uh, significant opponent to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which came. So this suggests that this is a, a, a plan that just did not come out of uh, nowhere, that had been in place for, uh, you know, for at least half a year, probably more than that. That remains to be confirmed um, um, by historians or documentarians um, uh, before long, but that is the, uh, the way things appear. Uh, but when they, uh, Russia did invade Ukraine, Europe did respond at first with uh, economic sanctions that did not affect Russia's energy industry. And this is probably what Putin was betting on because it would have uh, apparently to Mr. Putin shot Europe in the foot using its own weapons. Um, this was part of his calculus, uh, but that did not... Uh, um, remain the case by any means. And uh, Europe short, uh, showed a certain amount of courage in what it did. Um, but as we will see in a few minutes, it was a courage that had arrived a little bit late on the scene uh, because uh, Europe itself had kind of set up the, uh, its over-dependence on Russia. 
at, at this point, when uh, the uh, EU sort of launched the energy war, um, threatening to decrease and even end its reliance on Russia, then prices surged even further. You have to remember that, uh, or we should remember that prices for oil and natural gas and also for for uh, oil-based fuels like uh, gasoline and diesel and jet fuel, those are prices are set on uh, commodities markets by traders. Um, so not by oil companies and not by countries, but uh, on the floor of stock exchanges, major stock exchanges in the world. That's very important because the fear dimension uh, the psychological dimension is just as important there uh, for setting prices as uh, data on uh, trends. So this was sort of the, uh, the lead up to what had happened. Now, and then uh, what did happen. Now, the U.S. Uh, came to Europe's aid in a very significant way. It stopped uh, shipping uh, its uh, liquefied natural gas uh, and a certain amount of its oil uh, to Asia, which was the largest market for the U.S. at the time because it had the highest prices. Uh, but uh, there are stories of LNG tankers about halfway from the U.S. to Japan uh, just being ordered to turn around and go to Europe. Uh, this is in uh, January and February in March uh, because the prices in Europe had gone so high. Um, and that there was a political dimension to this and, and a certain, um, uh, what should we say, a, a certain uh, fidelity perhaps to Europe. Um, I'm not sure if that's quite fair to say, but uh, the US did, and this is, these are private companies, remember, this is not uh, the government making a decision. Uh, although the government did urge many of the, uh, the private companies to send their natural gas, especially to Europe in, uh, in the winter. Um, so um, uh, a fair number of tankers, uh, cargoes went to Europe, I think about 60 to 65. Uh, that was not enough, but it really did uh, save Europe from a massive crisis. Uh, and the U.S. has continued to do that. U.S. companies have continued to do that, uh, whereas OPEC did not. And uh, we are still somewhat uh, suspicious of the explanation there, uh, which is that OPEC uh, had kind of tapped itself out and didn't have enough extra oil and gas on hand to actually uh, help Europe, or even if you put in capitalistic terms, take advantage of the prices there. Uh, this isn't entirely clear. Um, OPEC had produced much more oil and gas uh, than it does today uh, before, uh, but in 2019. Um, and so there's a certain amount of suspicion. Uh, if you do close in wells, you can damage the reservoirs. Uh, but the quality of the reservoirs that, uh, that uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE um, have um, are, is very high and uh, doesn't, it's not likely from a geologic point of view uh, that they would be that damaged. So there's a bit of suspicion about OPEC's policies up to this point, but it certainly has not grown its production um, as much as it promised uh, and as much as it probably can. Um, 
so the U.S. was really uh, alone in in uh, helping Europe out significantly. There were some smaller additions from uh, Algeria and uh, some redirected oil from the Persian Gulf, Iraq, and uh, and the UAE and Qatar. Uh, but it was not enough to really um, to help Europe overcome the crisis. Okay, so. Um, <clears throat> The last part of this for now is that Russia um, was forced because of Europe's new policies. Uh, and that also includes the UK and to a certain degree, the US, uh, both of which um, had a, um, a policy to ban Russian oil, uh, meaning crude oil and fuels. Uh, Russia shifted its exports to Asia. And in one sense, that makes a lot of sense. Asia is now the center of oil and gas demand worldwide. Europe's total usage is, has been declining since about 2005. Um, and so China's continues to rise and so does India's. India's faster. And uh, so do a number of other emerging economies like Indonesia um, and uh, Thailand and Vietnam. Uh, in Southeast Asia, and then uh, uh, several other, Pakistan and uh, Turkey as well, and then uh, some African countries um, like Ethiopia and uh, Kenya, Tanganyika, excuse me, <laughs> Tanzania, um, and uh, on the West African coast as well. But Africa is a sort of a different animal um, since it's uh, developing a very large oil and gas industry right now. In any case, Russia shifted uh, um, its exports uh, to India and China. And that remains the case, though it has not been able to shift all of its exports uh, that went to Europe to Asia. And there is a serious set of questions whether it will be able to in the future. Uh, despite the fact that uh, Asia is the center of uh, global demand um, at this point going forward. Um, so this is kind of, you know, the, the basic background, um, the, the skeleton of what has happened up to this point. Um, and right now, the EU is struggling with reduced supply of oil and gas uh, and extremely high prices, much higher than it has ever seen before. And this affects uh, everyday people and it affects them every day as well as industry um, and businesses. Uh, natural gas is used by a very high degree by uh, the residential sector in, uh, in Europe um, uh, at a higher level than it is in the United States. Um, and uh, the, the, one of the reasons for that is that uh, uh, the North Sea was a major producer of natural gas. And so that was a fuel that Europe had domestically, and they developed it a great degree. Uh, one of the problems with that is that natural gas is a depletable resource, and that is exactly what happened in the North Sea starting in the early 2000s. Uh, so the uh, production from um, the offshore and in some places onshore, such as the giant Grinnegan field in, in, uh, uh, in the Netherlands, began to deplete very quickly, very rapidly. And this is what happens when uh, depletion sets in. Um, and uh, this was one of the major reasons why Europe turned to Russia. 
um, to try uh, and compensate for that decline. And Russia did, it was very willing to do that. Um, this is a, uh, uh, an image that I, uh, from the website, Our World in Data, which is very, very helpful. Uh, I'm assuming that a number of you know this. Um, if you don't, you, it, it might make sense to check out because it has an awful lot of very good information, up-to-date information on, uh, on a great range of uh, realities in the world, political, uh, energy, demographic, uh, uh, biomedical, um, and uh, certainly economic as well. Uh, this is their, uh, their energy consumption uh, for the world by source. And you can see on the right side that oil, coal, and gas, how much they still dominate uh, global energy consumption. Now, they don't dominate as much as they might have in 1980, uh, but, they, but they do dominate. And as I showed before, it's, it's above 80%. Now, this does not entirely demean the contribution of renewables, uh, or as I would prefer, uh, you would say uh, non-carbon versus carbon, because that makes the most sense in the new context of climate change. Uh, but if you take away, say, nuclear, and if you have a bad year with hydro, um, you have very small capabilities worldwide uh, with the state of renewable energy. And that is after about $4 trillion in investment since uh, 2003. Uh, and, and so that is, does not say that the investment has been uh, of little value. That is much more a mark of what it takes a new energy source uh, to break in, uh, to, to force new space and take the place of oil, gas, and coal. They are very deeply integrated into modern societies. They cannot just be shut down because of pipeline uh, demonstrations or, uh, or uh, activism at shareholder meetings. The, those may be valuable to a certain degree, but they will not really get at the integrated nature of, of these fuels and their place in, the, in modern society. Um, so that's, again, the basic fact. This is just to emphasize uh, Russia's energy superpower status, now, superpower in quotes, but it is, uh, it is a major exporter, and this is among the top three in the world um, of crude oil, refined fuels, natural gas, coal, and nuclear power. Russia has, is in the stages of building uh, new reactors in a number of new states a uh, number of, of, excuse me, of states that uh, are brand new to uh, nuclear power. It is not the only country that is doing that, but it, it, it has the largest number of projects. For example, those in um, Bangladesh, in Turkey, in Egypt, um, those are three large uh, projects that uh, it has pursued and it's building reactors in India, in Belarus, in Hungary, in Iran, um, and in China also. And then uh, to where, uh, this does not include all the countries that, that Russia exports to, um, but it shows you that a number of countries uh, import a, a wide array of fuels. So Russia really is integrated in a large way into the global energy market. And so moving that, 
is also uh, a major change. Um, this is a, uh, an image of Russia's pipeline system. Russia is so large uh, that it is, you have, to, <laughs> you have to use a special series of projections to show its pipelines. And you'll usually find that uh, they break them into the, uh, the Eastern half and the Western half. Uh, if you look closer on the Western side, you'll see that there is a very large, almost arterial system of pipelines. Um, uh, that, that go from uh, Russia's producing areas in the Urals and in the, uh, um, in the West Siberian basin um, into Europe. A, a large part of that is the old Soviet system um, that went into Eastern Europe. Uh, the Soviets uh, supported uh, the Eastern Bloc, um, the Warsaw Pact countries with oil um, and its own military there as well. Uh, and that those were extended into uh, Western Europe uh, towards the end for hard currency. Um, but those pipelines were upgraded and now they, uh, they are a very deep attachment, physical um, and political uh, between uh, Russia and, and Europe as a whole. Um, they go from Greece uh, to the UK um, and include just about everything in between. Uh, you'll notice that in the east, uh, there, are there is a much smaller uh, pipeline system. It is much newer. Most of that dates from uh, the 21st century. And so if Russia, a big question is that if Russia is going to make a massive change to Asia, uh, it's going to need to build a very large amount of infrastructure. Uh, and that is uh, expensive. Um, and I'm not going to discuss the individual projects that it's launching um, already. You can see a very large one called the Power of Siberia 2 that goes straight from the Yamal Peninsula down into uh, Mongolia and will go into China from there. Um, but uh, much more than that is needed if it's going to be uh, supplying uh, a large portion of Asia um, with uh, oil, gas, and coal, oil and gas particularly. And then the, uh, the circular diagram there just gives a chart um, of, a, of uh, the major countries that, that import. Uh, and the red is China, the, the green are the OECD countries, mostly from Europe. Uh, so you can see that uh, those two entities are very important. But you can also see that if if the, the great majority of the green was to go into the red, um, that that would not be a simple matter. Um, even though that is uh, pretty much what Europe wants to have happen in terms of uh, decreasing its any uh, major dependence on, on Russian oil. This is oil. Okay. Um, I'm going to go over this one very quickly. Um, uh, the, the graph on the left side just gives you an idea about how dependent the, UE has the EU has become on Russia compared to other countries. Uh, Norway, uh, the US, um, Libya, Kazakhstan, Nigeria, and Iraq, you'd have to add almost all of those together to equal Russia. Um, Russian gas and oil are readily available uh, Russia has been able to underbid 
um, oil that is transported by sea, uh, simply because Russia can transport it by pipeline, much cheaper. Uh, and that has helped woo Europe's uh, dependence over time. Um, the, uh, the, the image on the right, uh, which is labeled the great pincer play, uh, is, is meant to uh, be discussed um, with uh, Ukraine at the focus. Russia has had a problem with Ukraine since the, uh, the early 1990s in terms of shipping oil and gas uh, to Europe. Ukraine is a major uh, transit center. Um, and uh, Ukraine has, and Russia have had uh, many conflicts uh, over pricing and payment, um, uh, the potential for Ukraine to steal, um, and, uh, or I should say the accusations of Ukraine having stolen. Um, and um, uh, this led eventually to some uh, shutdowns by Gazprom, by Russia, of gas going to Europe in the middle of the winter, 2006, 2009, 2011 were all periods during that. And uh, while this was happening, Russia had launched uh, what I call the great pincer play. Um, it had built uh, two pipelines, it had built one pipeline um, underneath the uh, Baltic Sea called Nord Stream 1. Uh, and then it, uh, as you may have heard, built a second one, which it appears will not be used at this point, going around Ukraine. And then it built uh, another series of pipelines underneath the Black Sea. Um, Turk Stream and Blue Stream are those. And so this is a pincer play to go around Ukraine. It cost many billions of dollars, but there were uh, a lot of uh, oil companies uh, who uh, and some other countries who uh, contributed uh, and um, uh, to the financing of this, and uh, today it exists. So uh, right now, Ukraine does not uh, get any oil or gas from Russia uh, directly, um, and the amount that is sh shipped through Ukraine to uh, Europe uh, is uh, much smaller than it was uh, a decade ago. This has been a successful overall uh, tactic by Russia um, to, uh, to the present. Now, this is an image showing uh, imported natural gas uh, into Europe uh, and the UK between 2010 and 2020. Um, if you look at this, uh, especially uh, where I have it labeled uh, uh, EU UK, uh, in the red area, you see how that has declined. Uh, that is domestic production for Europe um, and how, that, uh, how quickly that went down to, uh, to half of what it had been. Um, and then if you look at uh, the area labeled Russia, you see how that has increased over the same period of time. So this is pretty much what this shows. And then the also increase of liquefied natural gas uh, some of which, uh, or a growing part of which has come from the United States. Okay, now, after the war started and after the energy conflict began, um, there were an, a, a, a large number of countries that continued to buy Russian fossil fuels, even though uh, sanctions had been placed on, on the insurance of tankers 
who would be delivering that. And so you see China, um, which is not a surprise, but you also see Germany there. Um, crude oil and pipeline gas. And you see Italy and the Netherlands and Turkey, Poland, France, India, not a surprise, South Korea, hmm. and then Bulgaria and Belgium and Greece and Spain and Austria. So a large portion of Europe uh, continued to import uh, from Russia, both uh, crude oil, which is the red, uh, and the pipeline natural gas, uh, which is the blue. Uh, and the question is, what does this tell us? It tells us that those fuels are absolutely essential to their economies. They could not do without them and they had no alternatives. Uh, and this is one of the key things. Um, there has not been enough investment in new oil and gas production. Uh, for a number of reasons, but one of them is that uh, the world, uh, the, a lot of the oil companies um, have been told uh, that they are uh, the dark Satan um, and uh, they have lost a fair number of shareholders uh, and they have spent a fair bit of their money, not, not a huge amount, but a fair bit of it, uh, buying renewables. Um, and they have not invested nearly as much as they would have in the past uh, in new production. And meanwhile, their fields are declining. Uh, and so there are fewer uh, major producers than there were uh, 20 years ago. And Russia, that makes Russia stand out in, in terms of its importance for Europe. Um, so Mr. Putin might applaud that. Uh, but uh, the, the other result of his uh, invasion is that now it's not just the North Sea, which is a NATO pond or a NATO lake. Now it is the Baltic Sea as well. Uh, and that's very important uh, for Russia to have lost uh, uh, with Sweden and Finland becoming part of NATO, uh, which it does appear will happen at this point. Uh, so this is a major, this could be called a major uh, strategic blunder on Mr. Putin's part. Um, not only to unify NATO, but to expand it and to have it control pretty much all of the, um, uh, the, the shallow, or I should say the warmer ports um, that uh, Russia had command over. Okay, um, I see that I'm doing pretty well on time, but... Uh, uh, and hopefully I'm not confusing you with all of this. There's a lot, a lot of moving parts. Uh, another part of the background that's very important is the energy transition. Uh, one of the important things here is that Europe uh, made a decision four years ago uh, to place climate change at the very center of its policy environment and its policy discussions. Uh, not the military and not economic worries, but uh, climate change. Uh, and because of that, uh, it uh, put a great deal of emphasis on renewable energy. And I will use that term rather than non-carbon energy because it did not include nuclear power. Um, but Europe was very devoted, very dedicated uh, to the energy transition. The problem um, is that uh, it drank too much of its own Kool-Aid. <laughs> and began to think that fossil fuels were very temporary and that they would be mostly gone by the end of this decade. Uh, this, was, this was something that 
uh, analysts like myself um, have been following for a while and scratching our heads about. Um, the picture in the, in the upper uh, right is of a town in Germany that is completely powered by wind and solar. It's difficult to make out, but uh, most of the buildings are coated in solar panels. And then a little bit beyond the frame of the image, you would see a, uh, a wind farm. Uh, and this, um, this type of uh, success story uh, got a great deal of, uh, of publicity and it was quite uh, common and quite frequent. And you would read that Denmark itself was getting half as much as half of its electricity uh, from uh, renewables. Uh, but that sort of uh, misleads the reader in the first case, this, this town that I showed you only has 270 people in it. Um, that's not quite the same thing as running Berlin or London or Paris. Um, and the other is that Denmark does not get 50% of its electricity from, from offshore wind uh, consistently. It does in the aggregate, uh, but wind is not constant. Uh, it's not so much that the wind doesn't blow it is that the wind blows at different velocities uh, um, uh, within just a few minutes, as well as a few hours. Um, and that's true offshore as well, as people have found out, even though wind speeds are stronger. These are unreliable sources. And the, the EU has found that out um, this, this past year with uh, a, a wind drought. Uh, it is finding it now also. Um, there is a second wind drought. Uh, Texas has found that out also. Um, these are weak and unreliable sources without any large scale storage, which is not near to being uh, implemented at a commercial level at this stage. Uh, there's a fair bit of basic science that needs to be done before that will happen. But this is part of the Kool-Aid. People became very excited about the possibilities, uh, but also in a premature sense uh, and believing that things were much better and uh, that fossil fuels were going away much quicker than in fact was realism would dictate. Uh, and this uh, has become uh, one of Europe's uh, Achilles heels. It's also true for a fair portion of the, of the clean energy uh, universe, uh, but less so now than even a few years ago. Um, so the energy transition, it is real and it is happening, but it is not happening nearly as fast as you might think from reading a lot of media reports. Uh, and a lot of the, uh, um, well, it's, it's true, the hype that exists about wind and solar in particular. Um, and so this, this kind of led Europe a little bit off the course. Um, it's called magical thinking. And part of that magical thinking was that Russia would never ever use oil and gas as a weapon against, against the EU. Uh, would they? <laughs> um, because it was Putin and it was Russia, but Europe bet on the uh, assumption that uh, Putin would never do this because Europe was its lar his largest client, so why would he? Um, and that at the same time, um, renewables and hydrogen and then complete electrification 
of uh, transport and industry uh, would soon run things by say uh, 2035. Um, this is truly magical thinking uh, as, uh, as we're finding out now. And um, now I'd like to show you a, a little film of, uh, uh, this is from Europe, this is from the, uh, the, the, the EC, the European Commission, about how they will respond, about their plan to deal with uh, the energy crisis that they face right now. Um, and it's only about a minute and a half, but it is interesting to see. Okay, so granted, this is a kind of a PR document for them, uh, but it does accurately, uh, it does uh, condense a fair uh, portion of their actual plan. Uh, and uh, you can see that there's, there's a bit of a uh, same old, same old to this. Uh, a lot of money being put into renewables. However, uh, they have turned a corner um, on, on nuclear power. Uh, including that within the, uh, the, the realm of uh, sustainable uh, technologies now. Um, that is still being opposed uh, by some, uh, but it is now embraced by the majority that if we had built more reactors, we would be much less dependent on Russian gas. And that is very true. Uh, so we'll, this is something that is playing out right now. And uh, we'll see um, how this continues. No, nope, sorry. So this is my final slide. So these are some very basic portions of the changing landscape of energy geopolitics. Um, the EU is turning to the United States for its oil and gas and kind of creating an energy block in which the advanced nations draw on each other rather than on OPEC as much as in the past, or of course, Russia. But is this going to make climate an even heightened political issue? Uh, aren't these countries supposed to be moving away as rapidly as possible? And that's what uh, you, the, the EU uh, uh, promotional film we just saw uh, suggests as well, a video. Uh, so there's a lot of questions about this. Uh, the US becoming, the major supplier for Europe uh, and how that will play out um, uh, politically, domestically. Uh, Russia turns to Asia and Africa. Uh, it sort of helps power uh, a, another energy block dealing with the emerging and the poor nations. So you have an energy division of the world that mimics to a certain degree uh, the, uh, the historical division, the economic division, uh, the technological division, um, with the exception of China. Um, and the question here is how far will this go? How much infrastructure will Russia have to build? Uh, can it be trusted um, after what it has done in Ukraine? Will other countries trust it? Uh, if it is going to make a major pivot to Asia, let me say, it'll be competing directly with OPEC. Uh, so how will that play out? And then what about the entire climate dimension in this case? So there are a lot of questions around Russia's idea to pivot uh, to Asia. And now we have war as a real physical dimension to the energy transition. Will there be a great green rush? Uh, 
to avoid the conflicts uh, attributed to oil and gas uh, that are used again as weapons, major weapons. And will that be led by the EU? So these sketch out for you some of the major changes that are happening and the questions. They are not complete. There's a lot more to be said, as you might imagine, but this gives you a fair idea about what is going on uh, in the global energy geopolitical frame at the moment. Thank you very much. And I uh, wait for